Hello and welcome back to Gentle Man, redefining manhood in the 21st century. My name is Arjuna, I'm your host. Today I'm talking about the male body and how it is inhabited. As men, we may not realize just how much rigidity we are holding in our bodies day to day and how many prescriptions there are on how we hold and inhabit our bodies day to day. Our posture, the way we move, our mannerisms, the way we walk, the way we sit down, every movement and every moment in our bodies has the potential to either reinforce the ways that we've been raised and instructed to hold our bodies or to work against those habits and systems in ways that may implicate us in the eyes of other men and other people. So I'm going to be discussing how this shows up in culture and in individual bodies today and I'll also be talking about how working with this and gaining freedom in this can be empowering and enlivening and is actually what men need in order to be healthfully embodied in this day and age. So I want to start this off by talking about the rigid expectations around manhood. It is my belief and my observation that the ideas we have and the beliefs that we have and the beliefs that our cultures have for us shape our bodies. They shape our bodies because they shape our habits and our self-perceptions. And that which we believe about ourselves, we tend to show in our bodies and we tend to hold it in our bodies. That's really why it's shown, is because we hold it in our bodies. A common experience in the male body is holding rigidity, stiffness, tension. And there are many reasons for this. It's a very deep topic, of course. Feeling unsafe and feeling unable to express ourselves is one reason why we might develop rigidity. Feeling pressure to be a certain way, a literal weight on our shoulders. Feeling fear to express ourselves, which in turn puts our body into a fight-or-flight mode, which results in its own kind of posturing and movement profiles. And this is a somewhat metaphoric way to talking about it, but I truly believe that the rigidity of the expectations around manhood and male behavior in culture translate into a rigidity in the male body. So I'm really talking about how we as men are expressing through our bodies the expectations that our cultures and our upbringings place on us. Now, sometimes this happens in ways that are less consciously identified. So, for example, we often recreate the role modeling that we've had in our lives. If our peers and our male role models tend to move in certain ways, hold themselves in certain ways, express their bodies in certain ways, we'll tend to pick up on that. We'll tend to internalize ideas about why that is and ideas about why we should recreate that. So this happens first on an unconscious and very basic learning level. As babies and young children, we do this naturally. It's part of our growth. It's part of our biology. It's part of the young psyche. And then as we get older, we also have physical patterning beaten into us, either physically through perhaps being bullied if we're holding ourselves or moving ourselves in a girly way, or even in a more psychological way, like stand up straight, don't be lazy. So what I want to communicate is that by the time any of us reaches an age where we're able to have any amount of self-reflection and agency, the capacity to decide how we want to be and express ourselves in the world, we've already had years and sometimes even decades of reinforcement, both conscious and unconscious, about how we should be in our bodies. 
the body is an exquisitely sensitive and responsive and reactive being. Our bodies are such a unique melange of impulses and hormones and sensations and thoughts and experiences. They are truly the foundation of our existence, and they play such a key role in how we identify ourselves, how we identify with ourselves, how we place ourselves in the world, how we think about ourselves, how we communicate with other people, and how we conceptualize what our lives are. So I've been talking about this in a very conceptual way. Why don't I ground this a little bit in some concrete examples to illustrate it? So we are often instructed to do something as simple as stand up straight. People might want us to do this to show that we are more at attention or to communicate alertness. They might want us to do it to show some sense of self-possession or confidence or to communicate self-worth. There's this sense that in being more upright and perhaps having a straighter spine or having our shoulders back, that we are somehow more ready for the world and somehow at the same time more deserving of the world. So with this one simple instruction and the one simple action that it inspires, we can already see so many potential different social contexts and cultural constructs that might be reinforced as a result of playing that action out. And because we have internalized these narratives in our own individual ways, it will also elicit an internal response in us as well. This is one of the reasons that working with our bodies, working with posture, working with the way we move can have a really profound impact on how we show up in the world and how we feel about ourselves. These things are so intrinsically linked. Another simple example is crossing our arms. And this is an interesting one because it highlights the contextuality of so many of these mannerisms and ways of holding our bodies. So in one example, if you imagine a man standing up very straight with his legs spread wider than his shoulders, crossing his arms high up on his chest, and flexing his biceps. This is seen as a very aggressive stance, a very protective stance. Someone might stand this way to communicate intimidation. Someone might stand this way to show that they intend to be immovable. Now contrast this with someone being curled up on the couch, maybe in fetal position with their arms crossed, or maybe they're sitting down and their shoulders are collapsed and they have their arms crossed across their stomach. In this case, it actually communicates vulnerability. It's an act of protecting the self from some threat or circumstance, which is probably perceived to be too much to handle. So these ways that we hold and inhabit our body communicate so much to ourselves, to our nervous systems, and also to those around us. And when we start to understand and inhabit more these ways that we hold our bodies, we can be more at choice and hopefully increase our well-being and increase our ability to show up in the world the way we want to. Now, as I've often spoken about before on this podcast, as men, we tend to use our bodies in ways that reinforce our expectations of ourselves and our society's expectations of us as men. And so in the context of the body, as men, we are generally expected to use and display our bodies in ways that communicate dominance, confidence, ability, and effectiveness. And this is because our culture expects men to be those things. By and large, cultures around the world think of a man as someone who is able to get things done, able to protect, able to be grounded, 
able to be decisive, able to be competent at what they do. There's a big emphasis on doing for men. Men always have to be reinforcing their ability to get things done, to be bodily contributing something. And so it follows that we're also expected to hold our bodies in ways that communicate this, in ways that reinforce the perception of us being the kind of men that we're expected to be. And so, as men, we will be unfortunately bound by these expectations, and we will be bound by rigidity in our bodies until and unless we reclaim our freedom to move and hold our bodies how we want to. So, over the course of the rest of this podcast, I'm going to be making an argument for why this is so important, and for just how much healing there is in doing this work, and how doing this work will open up profound new spaces for self-expression, and profound new spaces for feeling more satisfaction in our lives. I want to do here is to examine some specific ways that men are limited in how we're supposed to hold and move our bodies. And I think identifying these is a great start in working with them, noticing them, and trying to find alternate ways or trying to find what is our truth behind these things. Some of these ways of holding ourselves and moving make us feel really good and make us feel really strong, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I just want to point that out. I'm not necessarily encouraging men to move away from being this way. I'm more encouraging men to move towards being at choice about doing these things and holding themselves in these ways. I want to move men towards being conscious about their culture's effect on them and how they choose to respond. And I believe that that's a healthier way of approaching our lives. It also means that when we do these things, we will now do them from a deep internalized place of wanting to do them and feeling good about them instead of doing it because we feel expected to do it. So when we are at choice and we joyfully express ourselves in certain ways, then that reinforces our feeling of well-being. When we are not at choice and we're expressing ourselves through a sense of obligation or a sense of fear of being mocked or fear of not living up then that same behavior ultimately expresses as constriction and pain in our bodies. So I'm going to start with posture, and I'm going to return to this example of standing up straight. This is such a key part of the way that men are instructed to be. To a certain extent, I think the roots of this go all the way back to very basic primate behavior. So I've been talking about this so far as a cultural expression, but really it goes back all the way to the lizard brain, all the way to what our fundamental animal assumptions and responses to the world are. However, this particular one, standing up straight, I believe is more of an enculturated thing. In the culture that I live in, the white Western world, I believe this impulse to stand up straight is heavily influenced by military culture. This is a familiar topic on this podcast, how military culture has affected male behavior. In the military, standing up straight communicates a number of things. It communicates being at attention. It communicates paying attention. It communicates readiness, both to take action and also to receive orders. 
Also, when practiced en masse, it communicates coordination. And so, when large groups of men do things like standing up straight or holding the same position, there's a certain unnerving reinforcement in this. There's an unnerving magnification. Which in this context communicates menace. So, for example, if an opposing military force sees you and your company coming and you're all marching together and you're all holding a really alert and aggressive stance, it's designed to strike fear into your heart. So, this simple act of standing up straight, feet shoulder width apart, or maybe slightly wider, with your chest out and your shoulders back, staring straight ahead, this is the military ideal of being at attention. In militarized cultures, this posture communicates many things. It communicates the qualities I've just outlined. It communicates confidence. It communicates dominance. It communicates power. And this is why so many of us are instructed to do this. You'll hear this all the time where men coaching other men to be more powerful will say, Stand up straight. It's a quick and easy way to get yourself into a more powerful mindset. It's become a kind of shorthand or a heuristic that measures a whole constellation of character traits. And when done confidently enough or convincingly enough, it's designed to communicate those things to other people as well. So the pressure around, the expectation around, the showing up that is implied by standing up straight is a pressure that we put on ourselves as men. There's a way in which we are locked into that expectation. There's a way in which that expectation prevents us from doing or being things we would otherwise like to do or be. It prevents us from being relaxed. It prevents us from being calm. It prevents us from not having to be vigilant. It prevents us from softening. It prevents us from getting into a more feeling space. It prevents us from expressing the softer or more receptive parts of our nature. So you'll notice when you go to hug a child, when you go to caress a lover, when you want to put someone at ease, then stand up straight, shoulders back, chest out is not the approach. And I think you'll find that men who spend too much time in this mode will have trouble spending time in those other modes. That's not always true, but I believe that there's a pattern there. Now, a related constellation of posturing and self-expression is this kind of chest out, elbows out, legs spread expression. Manspreading is one of the terms that has been coined from this phenomenon. And this is really a way that men assert dominance by taking up more space. So the foundational message here is, I am important enough and I am confident enough to assert that importance that I'm going to occupy this space with my body sometimes to the exclusion of the space of people around me, sometimes in ways that physically or energetically affect other people that I'm sharing space with. And so this posturing is a tool that men will use to either consciously or unconsciously assert themselves in a space. I started thinking about this a lot more after I heard women talking about it, and I started to notice it more. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And while it's true that this plays out very much in a dynamic between men and women, for example, it also plays out very much between men. Ever since I learned about manspreading and started to see it everywhere, I've started to try to be more careful about when I'm doing it. And I've also been on, I would say, a little bit of a campaign to draw attention to it when it's happening in my space. So up until recently, I was working a job that had me flying all over the world. I was traveling very regularly. And I remember on a number of flights, sitting next to men who were displaying typical man-spreading behavior. 
And several times I would notice a man's leg or knee or maybe elbow drifting into my personal space. And I developed the habit of gently but firmly pushing back or gently but firmly asserting my own body into that space. And the responses were really fascinating. It was amusing to me how alarmed some men would be when I responded in that way. Like, what are you doing? Why are you touching me? That's uncomfortable. You're not supposed to touch my knee with your knee. That's gay. You could see these narratives kind of silently playing out behind someone's expression. So if you're a man, I recommend trying this. It's a great way to both regain our individual sovereignty and also play a part no matter how minute in reshaping culture. So now I want to examine the opposite of this outer, taller, bigger, wider expression, which is when men slouch or draw themselves in, or like I was saying, maybe they hug themselves or they cross their arms in a less strong presenting or dominance presenting way. When men do something as simple as sit with their legs pressed together instead of spread, this will often communicate weakness or uncertainty or a feeling of being intimidated or in some cases laziness or lack of capability. And this is because they are perceived as being the opposite of the postures that communicate strength and ability and confidence. So men get both sides of this. On the one hand, they're expected to hold themselves in certain ways to communicate certain things, but then they're also judged if they're not doing it. That is also presumed to communicate something about them or their character. And heaven forbid a man look weak, even for a moment. I mean, that's tantamount to dying. There's no coming back from that. You may as well just throw yourself in the canal and get it over with. So a lot of these postures have an inverse which communicates the opposite thing. The next category I want to talk about is the constellation of postures that are typically associated with gayness. Now these vary culture to culture, but if you at the moment just stop and think about whatever a gay man is expected to look like in your culture, you'll immediately see some mannerisms. So in the cultures that I live in, gay men are expected to do things like pop out a hip when they're talking, or have a limp wrist, or maybe clasp their hands together in front of their chest while they're talking, perhaps walk in a certain way. At the root of these assumptions is the idea that these mannerisms are feminine, which is interesting because over time, I think some of them have become their own unique mannerisms and now have a lot less to do with the way women typically behave than they do with the way that people expect gay men to behave. But that's the foundation of the judgment, is that these things are effeminate. And so most straight men have been raised to stay well clear of using any of these mannerisms in their own bodily expression. So one of my recommendations is in the coming days and weeks and months, just notice if you find yourself not holding your body in certain ways because you're afraid to look feminine or afraid to look gay. This is a huge force that's holding men back from having their fullest expression, that is making men feel shame for wanting to move their body in very normal ways. The idea that holding yourself in certain rigid ways creates a kind of power really breaks down when you examine the restriction that comes as a result. I believe that a more true power comes from freedom. The freedom to express yourself how you want, the freedom to move how you want, the freedom to not be worried about what other people think of you. In my mind, that is a greater power, and it also tends to be a less abusive power as well. It tends to be a power that creates less suffering in the world, both for you and for the people around you.
So if we're talking about men getting truly empowered, getting empowered on a deeper level, this is part of it. Removing the restrictions on how we can be, removing restrictions on behaviors that are healthy, that make us happier, and that ultimately create less harm in the world. A few more examples on posture, just to continue getting you thinking about it, are crossing legs. Now, in some cases, crossing legs is considered to be okay. In other contexts, not so much. There are also more manly ways to cross your legs and then more womanly ways to cross your legs. So, for example, if you cross one knee over the other and then tuck one of your toes behind the other leg, that would be considered a very womanly way to cross your legs. Whereas, on the other hand, if you bring one leg up and you rest the ankle of one leg on top of the knee of the other leg with your foot kind of sticking out, That's a more manly way of crossing your legs. And I think the simple difference there is that the first example might be something you'd be more likely to do if you were wearing a dress and your legs were exposed and you didn't want to be flashing your underwear. Whereas in the second example, you're probably wearing pants. And so having that kind of man spread while you are crossing your legs is culturally acceptable. So that's another one to pay attention to. I also wanted to say that there are categories of holding the body which convey dominance through relaxation. So you'll notice there are certain men who have adopted a mannerism of kind of sitting back, spreading out, kicking their feet up, slouching in your chair in a kind of powerful way. This is the counterpoint to the rigid at attention male posture. There's a way in which this can also be used to assert dominance. And rather than the communication being, I'm ready for action, the communication is more, I'm relaxed and I don't really care what other people think about me. So these are two very different ways to display a dominance that might actually feel very similar on the receiving end. And they're both designed to convey power in one way or another. If you've been enjoying the Gentleman podcast, I'd like to ask you for your help. Growing a community and an online presence takes a lot of participation from listeners such as yourself to really help things take off. If you value this show and it has been meaningful in your life, help me out by doing one of the following. Leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. Recommending it via word of mouth to your friends and family is another massive way that you can help this podcast grow. Following on social media and liking the content, Gentleman Podcast is our Instagram handle. You can also find us on YouTube at Gentleman Podcast, three words. I really appreciate your help and your support. It's one of the things that will help me to keep making this content and to keep making it better as well. Thank you. Now I want to pivot into talking about movement. There's a lot of context that we hold in the way that we move. So a big one is walking. Men are also expected to communicate power and confidence and a certain kind of relaxedness in their walking. In my culture, men are expected to take big strides. They're expected to move like they're not concerned about running into other people. They're expected to assert themselves as they move through space. And so taking big strides, having your feet land solidly, swinging your arms, maybe getting your shoulders in there, back straight, eyes forward. These are the kinds of expectations placed on men when they're walking. And it's easy to conjure in the mind different examples of confident strides, different examples of men's power walks. 
Walking communicates so much to the world around us. And again, many men feel pressured to walk in certain ways and also to not walk in other certain ways. So returning to the gay thing or the effeminate thing, men are expected to not walk with their hips too much or to walk in ways that really accentuate their legs, to walk in ways that bring out this kind of sinuous, flowy quality of the body. These are considered to be feminine and womanly. And so men who walk in this way, especially in a larger or more exaggerated way, will almost certainly be read as being gay. And this is a great limitation placed on us. We spend so much of our times walking and moving through the world, and being restricted in these ways really limits our self-expression. I'm curious what kind of walk I might want to do, or you listening might want to do, if you had no perceived limitations around it. If you could walk however you wanted to walk. It's a fun thing to explore. I recommend it if you get a chance to just practice walking across a room or practice walking through a space. Try some different stuff, you know, pretend you're on a catwalk, pretend you're in the army, pretend you know kung fu, pretend you're a dancer, pretend you're a child. How do we walk differently depending on how we're feeling? There's a lot of room for expression there. There's a lot of room for sensation and for feeling where we are and for communicating where we are in that. There's a lot of fun in it. There's a lot of play there. Men don't play enough. There's a relaxation and a lack of self-awareness in play, which we don't allow ourselves most of the time. It can be really powerful to reclaim that. Another thing is dancing. I'll bet there are many men listening to this who, even just hearing that word, have this kind of unconscious tightening up or this, Ugh, dancing is uncomfortable. I'm not good at it. Or I've been judged for it. I don't feel comfortable doing it. Dancing has been a really important part of my self-reclamation process over the last 10 years. And the somatic experience of getting back into my body and learning how I want to move and removing some of my self-consciousness around it has been so healing for me. It has taught me so much about myself. It has taught me so much about the importance of my body and the importance of movement for healing and for self-knowing. I can't recommend dance enough as a tool of self-discovery. The particular style of dancing I'm talking about is ecstatic dance. Some refer to it as five rhythms, or there might be other names for it. It's really a style of dance which encourages people to move however they want to move, within reason of course, to encourage freedom of expression and not being locked into one style or not being locked into partner dance as a paradigm. And learning how to move in that space has really given me permission to move in other ways, in other areas of my life. So I highly recommend it. A lot of men refuse to dance or they refuse to get much into dance because they feel like they're going to get judged. They feel like people are going to look at them and be like, what the heck is that guy doing? He looks weird. He looks like a freak. Or it might come back to the classic, he looks gay. So for a lot of men, dancing starts and ends at just kind of shifting their weight from one foot to another, maybe kind of looking over their shoulder, you know, maybe snapping their fingers or just something really basic with their arms. And that's it. That's all they do. Or maybe they do that kind of freak dancing that you see in clubs a lot. And that's basically the limit to their range of dancing motion. And this is really sad. Dancing is a really fundamental part of human expression. And when you're able to do it in an unrestricted way, in an unconscious way, it's so freeing. Another challenge I've run into with dancing is in partner dancing, because partner dancing paradigms are almost always built up around the man leading the dance and a woman following. 
And so not only does this call into discussion problematic gender norms, but it also places a lot of pressure on men to do it properly. There's a lot of responsibility on the person leading the dance to lead it properly. And there's a lot of expectation on men to be good at it. I've wanted to get into partner dance for years, and I have been reluctant to do so, and it's been a big challenge to do so, because there's this expectation that I have to be good at it right from the start. I've had a number of women get really uncomfortable dancing with me because I didn't know enough what I was doing. I couldn't effectively lead the dance, and that put them in a very uncomfortable situation. So I can see why a lot of men just avoid it altogether. There's too much room for humiliation in there. There's too much room to look stupid, to look weak, to look like you don't know what you're doing, to get judged, especially judged by women. And that's just too great a blow to the male ego. So I'd love to see men have access to a greater freedom around dancing. I also want to take a moment to talk about ableism and how it affects men. A lot of contemporary cultures are very ableist for a number of reasons, but I think industrialism and modern productivity culture really pushes us in this direction. And I think men especially feel a lot of pressure to be able-bodied because the concept of the productive man is a man who's using his body to get things done in the world. Bodily strength and bodily autonomy is such a huge part of how men feel effective in the world and for how men get praised in the world. And so a lot of spheres in which men are encouraged to participate, such as athletics, laboring, the military, doing handiwork around the house or in the yard, these are all areas in which men are expected to have the full use of their bodies. And they're also expected to be able to tolerate pain and discomfort while they're doing it. If a man is not able to do that gracefully, or if a man is not able to tolerate discomfort or pain, guess what? He's being a girl. He's being a woman. He's being a sissy. So in the broader context of how men move, when it relates to getting things done, there's a high ableistic expectation on men. And so men who have their movement limited or have certain capacities of their body limited will especially feel this pressure and they'll be especially impacted by those limitations. I've talked about restriction, but I want to go into what gaining awareness and what gaining freedom in these areas allows. And this is really profound once you start getting into it. So the first thing is simply feeling into the body. When we start noticing our bodies and noticing how we're holding our bodies and how we're moving our bodies, we start to notice more how we feel. This can help us develop a greater awareness around our emotional states. It can help us get clearer on our opinions around things, whether it's things that are happening in our lives, ways that we're being treated, judgments we have around ourselves, things that we're longing for, things that are making us feel bad that we didn't realize. So a lot of information can be gleaned simply from feeling into the body. So when we start relaxing our expectations around how we're supposed to hold ourselves and move, we start gaining more insight into what our body has to tell us. And what do you know? Once you start doing this, you'll almost certainly come up against vulnerability. 
This is the big V word which men are coming up against, which I believe men need to come up against. Vulnerability is a gateway to so many beautiful things in life. It's a gateway to connecting with other people. It's a gateway to connecting with ourselves. It's a gateway to discovering deeper truths. It's a gateway to leading richer lives and more enjoyable lives, lives that can contain more pleasure and more meaning. Vulnerability is often conceived as a kind of psycho-emotional experience, but the body contains so much vulnerability, and so much of the work of vulnerability actually happens in the body. The physiological experience of feeling vulnerable happens in the body. And so it's unsurprising that people who want to avoid feeling vulnerable, like men in general, will tend to avoid feeling into their bodies. So there is a rich wealth of emotional experience just waiting for us, waiting for us to dive in and get into our bodies and really see what's going on in ourselves. Another thing that freedom in our bodies allows us to do is to express ourselves to find our own uniqueness and our own individuation. So if you think about some of the more unique characters that you know, some of the people who have a very distinct style or way of being, they probably have certain ways of holding themselves and expressing themselves and moving their bodies, which really stand out. Whether it's the way they bend over when they laugh, Maybe they do a funny thing with their eyebrows when they're making a certain expression. Maybe they jerk their head in a certain way. Maybe they have a really unique walk that you've never seen anyone else do. These are all things that really make us stand out as people, and they're part of the beauty of being human. They make us memorable. They make us fun to be around. They're the things that make us us as opposed to being like other people. They're the reason that people come to us and not to somebody else. And when we are expressing ourselves more from a place of selfhood, from a place of the uniqueness of who we are, and that's grounded in a love of who we are, the more other people will be drawn to us. We become more magnetic when we are like that. However, we also become more repulsive to certain people who either aren't ready for us or who just don't like the way that we're being. So we have to be prepared for that. There's a certain resilience in this work. This work is radical, it's moving against the dominant narrative of our cultures, and so invariably we will come across criticism, we'll come across shaming. Other people will try to reinforce the narratives that we are stepping away from, so we have to be ready for that. Another thing that getting into our bodies allows us for more is to spend more time in authenticity. So our bodies are one of the best communicators to us of what is authentic. You'll notice what happens when you tell a lie or when you find yourself doing something that goes against your ethics or your beliefs. You'll find your body contracts. You'll have this feeling of constriction within yourself. You'll have this feeling that some part of you is being separated away. And this erodes our integrity as people. And this is really happening in the body. And so when we start to get more into our bodies and when we start expressing ourselves through our authenticity, we start feeling more whole. We start feeling more integrated. We start feeling like more of us is showing up in the world. And that's a very satisfying feeling. This is also the place from which a more rooted confidence comes. And really a lot of the qualities that people find sexy, desirable, and attractive come from this place a place of self-knowing, a place of not being afraid to be the self, a place of loving ourselves and loving our lives. And that love is really magnetic. People respond very readily to that. It carries a certain kind of charisma. Finally, I want to talk about the health benefits. 
When we get more authentically into our bodies, we start relaxing more. We start holding ourselves in ways that feel more comfortable to us. We start breathing more deeply. We start experiencing more pleasure. And all of these things are essential to us being healthy beings and feeling happy and feeling well. I have found a really direct correlation in my life between how in my body I am and how good I feel. Now, of course, sometimes it's a process. Sometimes I get into my body and discover something really uncomfortable that I hadn't noticed before, something that I was blocking off or trying to ignore. But always when I work with that, when I breathe into it, when I move into it, maybe when I do something more focused like yoga or getting some kind of physical therapy, I invariably end up feeling better afterwards. So I cannot overstate the importance of this practice on overall health. It's been really vital for my emotional, mental, and physical health over the years. I think I would be a total mess if I hadn't started working on this process. I might even be dead right now if I hadn't started working on this process. So it has been truly life-saving for me. I really can't highlight that enough. Our bodies are the place where our life happens. And when our bodies are constricted and rigid and held in shapes that we don't like, they sap our life. Our life force is literally diminished. This is vital work. It's vital work personally, and it's vital work culturally. When people start seeing men behave in different ways and hold themselves in different ways, it will have a profound impact on the culture. And this is the kind of really fundamental stuff. It's the ground level stuff, which really changes attitudes and behaviors. So on the way out here, I want to leave you with a few questions to ask yourself, some things to work with. The first one is, how am I currently affected by the ways I move and hold my body? I want you to simply start noticing what your mannerisms are. Start noticing what your posture is like. Start noticing how you walk. And ask yourself, what does it mean? How do I feel about those things? How does it make me feel when I walk like that or when I stand like that, when I move like that? Oftentimes you get a lot just by noticing something. You may get the answer to a problem or a new idea about what you want to do with your life just simply from the mindfulness. My next question is, how would I like to move and be in my body? This might make you draw a blank or it might be kind of uncomfortable. We're so used to being how we normally are that it can be kind of confronting to consider other ways of being. So again, this is where mindfulness can help us. Just be on the lookout for things that you want to do, but don't let yourself do because of cultural expectations. Over time, you'll start to notice. You'll be in a club or at the bar, and you'll see other people dancing, and you'll catch yourself saying, oop, I can't do that. Or you'll want to hug someone, and you'll hold back. Or you'll want to laugh in some way, or you'll want to do something, and you'll feel a rigidity in yourself, and you won't do it because you'll feel embarrassed. So start to notice those things. A great question I like to ask is, what would I do if nobody cared? Oftentimes people sing in the shower, or they do a silly dance when they're alone in their room. That's a great place to start. Start alone in your room. Ask yourself what you want to do. Try dancing with no one else around. Make a weird expression to yourself in the mirror. Make funny noises. Walk in some stupid way. It's really freeing, and it's fun. This is a way to play. So what would I do if nobody cared? Great question for so many different aspects of life. Now this question is a bit more of a rhetorical one, but I think it's important, which is what could I learn about myself if I experimented? I'm going to say that one again. What could I learn about myself if I experimented? 
I have no idea what the answer is going to be, but I'll bet that something will come up for you if you ask yourself this question enough. So my invitation to you in coming out of this show is to start paying more attention to how you're moving and holding your body. Start paying more attention to how other people do and start asking yourself these questions and try to have an openness to something new. And remember that there's an incredible amount of healing and self-expression and confidence and power and awesomeness on the other side of this process. My encouragement to you would be don't wait. Start working on this. It's worth it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Gentleman, and I'll catch you next time.